Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is David Woodbridge. David is the author of the recently published book, Missionary Primitivism and Chinese Modernity, The Brethren in 20th Century China, just out from Brill. David, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the background to the project? I uh, I guess the immediate background to the project was me going to University of Manchester for postgraduate studies. I did my master's and my PhD there and that's where I first got into Chinese history and decided I want to, wanted to explore a bit more the, uh, the history of the British involvement in China and in particular to look at, at missionaries and I decided to begin by looking at the archive material I could find immediately around me. And the University of Manchester has an archive to do with the history of the Brethren movement and had recently acquired uh, some of its missionary material. So I explored that initially for an MA dissertation and then began to look at it in a bit more depth for a PhD. And although I hadn't intended the whole project to be about the Brethren, I found that the material was so interesting, so rich that yeah, uh, there was certainly enough there to, to develop a larger project. So many of our listeners will know that the John Rylands University Library in Manchester is one of the, the great academic libraries in the UK, isn't it? It's got like, enormous holdings in terms of documents from the New Testament, you know, all, all the way through to the present day. And it has a very rich seam of what we might call Protestant dissenting archives as well as a Methodist archive. And you've mentioned the archive called the Christian Brethren Archive. Just in case listeners aren't familiar with this group, could you briefly tell us who who are the Plymouth Brethren or the Christian Brethren and, and why do they matter? Yeah, so the archive itself actually was started by a member of the Plymouth Brethren. That was F.F. F. Bruce, who was professor of, I'm going to get his title wrong, theology or biblical studies or something of that ilk at the University of Manchester, so he, he began it. But the Brethren themselves were a nonconformist group, had its origins in the early 19th century in Britain and Ireland, and it's hard to pin down their origins, I guess. They were initially started out as groups of evangelicals who wanted to try and push for greater Christian unity you know, between denominations, and gradually emerged, uh, developed into a movement in and of itself that sought to return to faith the practices of of the early church. And uh, to do that, they they sought to turn their back on, I guess, historical tradition and denominational tradition, and just to try and live by live by the tenets and the example of of the New Testament. You know, in your book, David, you you give this the term primitivism which is the, the, the ideal of living or organising church as closely as possible 
to the examples provided in the New Testament. And in, in, in your book, uh, Primitivism obviously is there in, in the book's title, Missionary Primitivism and Chinese Modernity. But in the book, you give us a couple of examples of what primitivism means for brethren missionaries in China um, and elsewhere, I suppose, too. Uh, one of those big themes is um, hesitation about engagement in politics. And I suppose the second of those big themes is the desire to live by faith. Could you talk us through what each of those themes means or represents or how they were worked out in practice? Yes, I think in terms of politics, you know, when the brethren were were emerging kind of in the early mid 19th century, missionary activity was largely carried out by large established missionary societies. And uh, I guess the the expansion of these missionary societies was very much uh, closely entwined with the expansion of of the British Empire. They tended to follow where colonialists went or where areas had been opened up to trade. And Brethren felt that the model of the missionary society was very much a secular one. It it seemed very kind of business-like. They would have a, a board of of trustees and uh, they would try and get people to uh, subscribe and donate and they would recruit and employ missionaries and send them out and uh, the brethren felt that this was this had more in common with the modern secular business model than it did with the original vision of the early church so they sought to kind of reorder reorganize missionary work to uh, try and try and return to the idea of church sending out missionaries and and for the church and for individual missionaries to re, to be responding to the call of the holy spirit rather than having rather than being organized by human institutions i suppose so um, there is a kind of an anti-institutional theme running through a lot of your book isn't it that's what primitivism seems to mean for, for, for many of these brethren missionaries. But I suppose one of the great advantages of being a, a missionary with a mission organisation was that you know, fair chance of getting your salary on time. Uh, how did brethren missionaries finance their endeavour? Mm, yeah, I mean, that brings us to the second of the two points you mentioned, which is uh, living by faith. So rather than missionaries relying on a salary paid by a missionary society, uh, the brethren felt that missionaries should be relying on God to provide for them. And that was an idea that I guess you can probably trace it back to a figure called George Muller, who uh, was not one of the early kind of brethren figureheads who opened a number of orphanages in southwest England and sought to use them as a demonstration to people that God would provide for those who set out to do stuff according to his will, according to his purposes. So living by faith, it wasn't, missionaries weren't saying that God would send support falling from the sky like manna from heaven, although, you know, they testified that if, if need be in situations where there was need, he, he could do that and he would do that. It was more that rather than missionary support being initiated and organised by a human organisation, a committee, it should be individual Christians, individual churches responding to God's calling, God's prompting for them to give and to support missionaries. It was very much, you know, it's still essentially it was churches, it was uh, individual people supporting missionaries, but it wasn't done in an organised way. The idea was that you you responded to uh, 
the leading, the prompting of the Spirit to give support to individual missionaries. So in some ways, this anti-institutional impulse within Brethren missionary culture it could be seen as anti-modernist, couldn't it? It's, a, it's opposed to organisation. It's, it's deeply individualistic, you might say. It's certainly quite in tune with the romantic tenor of the mm. 19th century and, and, and perhaps even into the early 20th century. But you, you describe the impact of and development of this primitivist culture within a very specific context, which you describe as Chinese modernity. So mm. how, how does Brethren anti-modernity impact upon or be impacted by Chinese modernity? What's happening? Just remind us briefly, what's happening in China in the first half of the 20th century and, and, and what way does that represent an alternative modernity to that of the Brethren? Yeah, so this is a very tumultuous time in China. The final imperial dynasty, which was the Qing dynasty, had come to an end in 1911. It had really struggled through the 19th century, there had been internal rebellions and increasingly pressure from the West on the outside, but it had kind of staggered on, kept going, but finally collapsed in 1911. There was an effort after that to form a, a Chinese Republic, but that was not a great success. The country really fragmented into a lot of different regions, many of them controlled and run by local warlords. So, so yeah, during the first half of the, of the 20th century, China was very divided and there were different political groups in conflict. In particular, you had the nationalist, uh, the nationalist party, who were effectively the government for most of the time. But you also had the communist party, which was emerging and becoming stronger and stronger. So you had a very chaotic internal situation, but also there was a, a growing threat from outside as well, particularly from Han, which had rapidly modernised during the 19th century, was uh, had become a very powerful country and was looking to expand its influence into East Asia. So, so yes, this is the kind of political context of what's going on. And yeah, like you say, it's really the the beginnings of modern China, I guess, as we know it, as we see it today. Mm. Uh, had the collapse of a centuries-old, a millennia-old even kind of imperial system with an emperor and a, a ruling dynasty and an effort to create something else, a state along modern lines with you know, a modern government, modern statecraft and, and institutions. So, so yes, the brethren were operating within a China that was seeking to break away from the past and establish some kind of new new form which they could which could uh, take them on and flourish in the modern world. So in some ways that might seem to be quite an unpromising context for a Western missionary group that are deeply anti-politics and um, very apathetic, if not hostile, actively hostile towards organisation or institutions. But how, how did the Brethren get on? Were they influential in China? How many Christians are there in China now and have the Brethren influenced them in any distinctive ways? Yeah, so listeners are probably fairly aware of the situation in China regards Christianity. There has been a huge growth in the number of of Christians in China, particularly of Protestants, and that gets kind of sporadic news coverage in the West, particularly when there's instances of conflict with the government. 
so uh, numbers are difficult to come, well, reliable numbers are difficult to come by, I guess, mostly because you have a government-approved church in China, but you also have many Christians who uh, choose not to be part of government-approved meetings, and they are much more difficult to to count. So, I mean, estimates in terms of numbers range from about uh, 20 million, which is more around the official government estimate, to uh, some would estimate 100 million plus. So there's clearly a huge range of opinion there. So probably safer to put it somewhere in the middle, around 50 or 60 million, I suppose. But even then, it's very it's very hard to tell. But I would argue, the book argues, that the Brethren have been very influential in making this happen. I don't think, as a distinct missionary presence, they weren't particularly big. And I'm sure you can find churches today in China, I know you can do, that will trace their origins to churches set up by Brethren missionaries. But the main influence the Brethren have had on the present-day Chinese Protestant Church uh, is through the influence they had on on Watchman Nee, who set up one of the first independent Chinese churches, which has proven to be very successful, both in terms of the numbers of people who who claim to be part of this movement, but also the broader influence through his life and through his writings that he's had on Chinese Protestantism. Now, you give us in the book a, a chapter on Watchman Nee, and in some ways this is the heart of the book, isn't it? It's the mm. moment when what might be quite abstract or quite Western brethren theological ideas or church practices become voiced in a Chinese context, which you argue in the book in a very interesting way. is a, is a Chinese context which is a port city context, a middle class context, and a context in which, I think you tell us Watchman Nee is a third-generation Protestant, uh, a, a context in which Christianity is already a very familiar world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, Watchman Nee doesn't appear out of nowhere. He emerges from a, a, a context where Christianity or Protestantism has become relatively well established. So, so when the West was first able to get access to China in the mid-19th century. It initially was limited to, to operating in five major coastal ports, and ostensibly that was for trade, but also missionaries are able to follow in behind and begin operating. So um, in one of these ports, uh, which is Fuzhou, where Watchman Nee grew up, he was essentially a third generation of a family who had been converted to Christianity in the mid to late 19th century. So there was already a fairly well-established Protestant community in Fuzhou. And Watchman Nee, although he had his own individual spiritual journey, his own conversion story, he was very much operating within a, a well-established Chinese Protestant community and one that was thinking about how it could uh, stand on its own, how it could break away from its association with the West and really try and build its own identity as as a local Chinese church. And in your book, David, you show us how, perhaps it's an irony, how um, its brethren ideas 
that actually make that possible. The idea of, of being self-supporting, being autonomous, providing its own leadership, etc. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the Brethren, as I mentioned before, you know, it began in Britain as an attempt to break away from Christian historical traditions and de- denominational traditions and to establish something that was based based more on the earliest practices of, of Christian faith uh, as outlined in the New Testament. And you then see very kind of interestingly this process kind of being repeated in China uh, in the case of Watchman Nee. He looks around him and sees a quite well-established Protestant churches and denominations and he is he he's looking for something more more pure, I guess, something better than what what he sees around him. And yes, he finds the ideas of the brethren very very compelling. This idea that you can turn your back on on human tradition and just return to a model of of faith and practice that you you know. You don't need you don't need established leaders. You don't need to follow tradition. You you just need to follow the simple guidelines in the New Testament. So yes, it's interesting how you see the process that the brethren went through themselves in the 19th century, uh, kind of repeated among Chinese Chinese Christians in the kind of early mid 20th century. And I suppose too in that chapter, David, one of the paradoxes is that knees drive towards primitivism is enabled by the tools of modernity. You talk about his access to publishing, uh, mm-hmm. printing facilities, the family business that he takes employment in for a while. And you show in that chapter how the tentacles of that family business as they stretch gradually um, out from and eventually across China um, provide the mechanisms for travel, for currency exchange. I mean, there's, there's a huge number of aspects in that chapter, isn't there, of, of the ways in which modernity is enabling this primitivist uh, missionary impulse. Could, could we talk also about two brethren missionaries that you, you also devote a chapter to, Geoffrey Bull and George Patterson. Tell us about these guys. Yeah, so Geoffrey Bull, George Patterson, both fascinating figures. Um, Geoffrey Bull in particular, I found, was someone who many people were familiar with. If I mentioned particularly in church circles, the name Jeffrey Ball, when I was carrying out my research, quite a few people were familiar with his name or had read his books. And, you know, not just brethren, he had people were familiar with him from wider circles as well. So Jeffrey Ball was famous for a book he wrote called When Iron Gates Yields, which was an account of his time in prison under the Chinese communists. He was arrested while he was a missionary after the communists came to power, spent three years in prison uh, before being released. And he was one of the, the last missionaries to leave China. So by the time he was released, there had been a lot of publicity, a lot of media attention to his plight. And so when he published his book, uh, his account of his experiences, it sold very well. It made him a bit of a celebrity. And so he had gone on, become a missionary, had gone to Tibet, and he had gone with another brethren missionary called George Patterson, who's a fascinating figure. In fact, I decided to explore this story because uh, when I began my research, I got in touch with uh, Neil Dixon, who part of a brethren historians network and he told me about George who was still alive at that time and offered to take me to meet him 
and I was fortunate enough to be able to interview him a couple of times. And yeah, his story is a fascinating one. So Jeffrey Ball, George Patterson were only missionaries for a short time. They went out to China after World War II and both wanted to try and preach the gospel in Tibet. They made it to Tibet and they made it further into the interior of Tibet than most missionaries have been able to. But just as it seemed like they were going to get established there, uh, you had the communist revolution. And once they got into power, the communists wanted to establish the borders of their new state. And that involved taking over Tibet. And once they'd done that, then they didn't want any Westerners in there and interfering. So George Patterson had had left previously, but Geoffrey Bull was there when the communists arrived, and that was when he was imprisoned. They're, they're both extraordinary characters, Geoffrey Bull and George Patterson, aren't they? W- w- one of the really complicating factors that they have to think through on the field in the interior of Tibet, high up on the plateau, is how they relate to a culture that's so utterly alien, but also a culture that's so heavily politicised. And you, <laughs> you, sh- you show in the book... Um, really wonderfully how they have to begin to consider or or reconsider uh, this anti-political impulse that has driven Brethren Missions up to this point. And uh, you show how they align themselves with a particular family, a very significant family, uh, with lots of um, financial and political interests, uh, which they can begin to to make use of uh, to develop their work. How does this uh, political context challenge their apolitical uh, sensibilities as they had developed up to that point. One of the questions I was really interested in uh, when taking on this project was to consider the relationship of missionary activity to the development of modernity in China. And yeah, the brethren were fascinating in this respect just because they perhaps possibly more than other Protestant groups, were insistent on trying to keep that division between their, their spiritual vocation and the modern, the modern world they found themselves in. And you know, part of that was to avoid being involved in, in modern political movements. But like you say, Geoffrey Ball, George Patterson found this increasingly difficult in the context, in the context of Tibet. So they really found themselves in a situation where they had to make a choice, really. You, Tibet at that time, it, its political status was was uncertain. It had kind of been operating as nominally part of the Chinese empire, but effectively uh, being led and governing itself autonomously. And there was a lot of discussion within Tibet itself about what the future would hold now that the dynasty had collapsed and new possibilities, new opportunities were open. So Bull and Patterson found themselves found themselves in alliance with perhaps uh, an unusual, unexpected group in Tibet, a kind of a growing middle class seeking greater political representation. So uh, Bull and Patterson really found themselves in a situation where where they had to choose. They wanted to continue being missionaries in China, in Tibet, they needed the support of its its political elite. And they, they really threw their lot in with Pandasan family who were seeking to set up some kind of modern constitutional arrangements in Tibet. 
and uh, siding with them really meant that they pitted themselves against the incoming incoming communist government. Both both men, as you described in the book, go on to very successful careers after that. Bull, although he becomes a literary celebrity with When Iron Gates Yield and a couple of follow-on books, becomes a I suppose a fairly conventional brethren preacher. Patterson, on the other hand, uh, publishes a string of books about his adventures uh, with Faber and Faber, very impressive London literary publisher, uh, enters journalism, enters politics, loses his faith, sets up rehabilitation scheme with his wife, Meg Patterson, um, spends the 1960s working with uh, rock stars like Eric Clapton, through whom he rediscovers his faith. Uh, that, that's interesting. comes out in the most recent Eric Clapton biography as well. Goes on tour with The Who. I mean, it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary story, the story of George Patterson, isn't it? Yeah. D- David, you've, you've written a phenomenal book, Missionary Primitivism and Chinese Modernity, The Brethren in 20th Century China, that speaks to so many big themes, both in terms of religious modernity, but also uh, Chinese history during this tumultuous period. Just recently published by Brill, 2019, it's an exceptional piece of writing and thanks very much for coming onto the show to talk about it you're welcome thank you well thanks for your time and, and take care and thanks to everyone else for listening in today i'll see you next time on new books and christian studies a channel on the new books network podcast <laughs>